Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run a website called Production Advice aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always, is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Hi, John. How are you doing? I just ate a whole pizza, and I'm ready to fall asleep. But first, we have a Q&A session. And I literally was asleep till about five minutes ago, but it's okay. I have coffee. We will make it through this. We'll survive. Exactly. Um, so yeah, another episode where we answer questions that you guys have left, either sent us by email or left in the comments on YouTube or maybe asked on social media, wherever we find them. Um, John, what's the first question? First question comes from Taylor. If you don't have a good audio monitoring system, could you use your spectrum analyzer to get a good frequency balance? No. What's the next question? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I, I feel like that is the short and yeah. concise answer. Like you, I, the meters can give us an indication of what's happening, but they don't tell us everything. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, I, I mean, I, I certainly think frequency analyzers can be useful, especially when we're learning what we need to do. I mean, I was, I had really basic, it was actually built into a consumer graphic equalizer um, when I first started training as a mastering engineer. So it had maybe, I think, eight bands over the whole frequency range. But it was generally helpful for kind of just kind of keeping my ears in check, really, you know, just making sure you weren't getting tired or just getting used to what you were listening to and fooling yourself. Um, and these days, you know, the, the plugins available have incredibly sophisticated analyzers on them, or you could get something like Span by Voxengo. There's a ton of either free or really affordable analyzers out there as well. Yeah. Um, my problem is that the the really detailed ones are too detailed. I feel like I actually... if. I use Span um, as a, an example on the Home Mastering EQ video series. And just because it's free, so anybody can kind of get access to it and have a, a level playing field, if you like. Um, and I recommend there that you change the settings to kind of broaden out the curve and to slow it down um, so that you don't get distracted by that detail. Yeah, you kind of need some averaging. Like, yeah, it, there's... There's so many factors with it. Like there's no one setting that works for all kinds of audio that you're doing or working on. Um, and different settings will be more accurate in the low end than the high end, <laughs> for example. A lot of these, the analyzers use FFT. And from what I know about FFT, it needs a very long um, block size, buffer size, for it to actually work in the low end because the waveform is longer than than the block size and then it kind of has to guess what it actually is. So yeah, low frequency accuracy in a meter is really tricky unless there's a lot of latency. Yeah, and actually you reminded me, we should put a link on the show notes at themasteringshow.com for people because uh, Dan Worrell, uh, who's done a ton of great YouTube tutorial videos, did one recently on how he has... Uh, span set up and he's got some settings in there that allow th that do all of these things we're talking about they kind of smooth things out and give you more resolution in the low end but even then um i just feel that, well there are things i pick out all the time with my ears that i wouldn't have noticed just looking at an analyzer um and correspondingly there are things sometimes that i see on an analyzer that look scary but actually sound absolutely fine and it does depend on 
the material and the arrangement and all of those things. So, and I think that's why I said no as the initial answer to the question. <laughs> it's because it's an invaluable tool to help you kind of understand what you're hearing and to learn what you're hearing and get clues as to where there may be potential problems, but it's not enough on its own. Um, so yeah. you, know, you also need to do all the other stuff of getting the best quality monitoring you can, or maybe getting a high quality pair of headphones and adding maybe some acoustic treatment to the room to help get things under control. All of those things are still going to be necessary, even if you have the best analyzer in the world. Yeah. I like when an EQ has the option of having the analyzer in the background, I usually like to have that, but I find it helps to like find the specific frequency, but you could definitely live without it. And if you have like a, you know, a lot of the fancy metering suites, it's almost like it's eye candy for the client or like to, you know, take a screenshot and share it on social media. Like, look, I'm working, <laughs> but like you don't really use them. <laughs> It's funny because I'm I'm the same. Almost all of the EQs I use have some kind of analyzer. Um, so I'm in the habit of having one of these things in front of me. And it kind of feels a bit weird if I try and use something that doesn't. But actually for the first, I guess, 10 or 15 years that I was working, I didn't have that. I mean, I remember when one of the first ones that was available was a thing called the Penguin Meter, which was a, a Windows thing only. It's still around somewhere. And yeah, I remember seeing this thing with this incredible detail and resolution and real-time FFT. Um, and I considered at the time buying a PC specifically to run this thing um, because the machine that I had, my the, the Sadie system that I was running on, I mean, A, I couldn't route the, the audio out and back in in real time, but also it just wouldn't have been able to cope with running this thing as well as the audio software. Whereas now we, we take them for granted. So, and I think maybe there's some advantage in that, you know, by so, so to go, the, I mean, it is helpful to have one of these things to help train your ears, but it's also helpful to not have one and to have to learn to just listen, um, you know, and to do what everybody else does, which is go for a narrow cue and boost it up and sweep around and find the problem frequency and pull it back and rock it backwards and forwards to figure out if you're in exactly the right place. And I, actually, I still do that now. I mean, one of the nice things about some of the EQs around these days, like the say the FabFilter Pro Q, is that you can solo the frequency band of the the frequency that you're working on and hear just and, and fine tune the frequency like that. Um, but you can also see it and the, often interests me, especially in the low end that quite often it will look to me as though the frequency is in one place, but what I eventually settle on by ear is a little bit different than that somehow, you know, it's kind of a great way to get in the right ballpark, but then it all comes down to how it sounds. So yeah, analyzers are great. We're very lucky to have, these toys available to us, but uh, you still need your ears. The next question comes from Coase. Are small foam speaker platforms enough to raise the speakers off of a desk, or do you recommend something higher or made of different material? Uh, so right now I'm using cinder blocks, like concrete blocks on my desk, and then I've got my monitors on the little sort of rubber pads that the Focals come with. But in the past I've used foam blocks, I've used uh, like not not foam like a like acoustic foam, but like um I don't know what the material is. The really dense kind of rubbery yeah, stuff. Yeah, more more dense foam. Yeah. It's not uh it it squishes, but it's not like soft. I've also used uh, like cork pads 
like uh, like potholder sort of things, uh, trivets, because you don't call it okay. <laughs> chunks of cork. And I've also used um, uh, the dense acoustic panel material, rock board, I think it's called, um, stuff that you'd have to like cut to shape. And all of those worked about the same, I would say. So, <laughs> but I, I do prefer the, the sound of something under the speakers. I know Ethan Weiner has, has done a video like um, proving that they don't do anything, but I feel like anytime I've done it, it's always been better to have that. Yeah, it's, I mean, I would, I would hesitate to say that Ethan has proved it. Um, he's, he's done a video where he wasn't able to measure any sensible differences. The idea is that you want to decouple the speakers from the desk um yeah the lots of people have the speakers sitting on the same work surface that the the daw is um sitting on or at any rate a large kind of table a, lo- a large flat yeah flat a large surface. flat area that's right um and the idea is that um i mean i guess even a shelf that's hung from a a paneled wall um and the idea is that because almost all frequencies have some kind of resonant frequency um if the speakers get whatever they're sitting on uh, vibrating in sympathy, resonating at the, that frequency, that's going to color the sound. But also the reflection, just having a large flat surface makes well, a big difference. Like, like you know, when you're playing music out of your phone, if you put that on a table, it gets louder. And, you know, the sound drastically changes in EQ. So the same thing is happening with the studio monitors when they're flat on a table. Well, it certainly can do, yeah. If they're, depending on the angles... Um, I mean, the, the quick test to whether that's happening is to just l- like the mirror test on the wall where you're finding the right place to put um, acoustic panels. You can move a, a mirror around on the surfaces in between you. And if you can see the speakers in the mirror at any point, then you're going to be getting some kind of reflection from that surface. Yeah. Um, and that could be coloring the sound. The other thing is that your tweeters need to be at ear level. That was the thing that Ethan pointed out that I think definitely is valid, which is that lots of people will test these things by listening to how things sound, getting a product, whatever it is, uh, putting it on the speakers, which will change the height of the speakers in relation to their ear level, and then listening again. Um, and that's mm. not a valid comparison. If you want to do that kind of with and without, you need to find something else to go underneath the speakers so that the speakers stay at the same height. Um, because the you know, th- there will be noticeable changes just from moving the speakers, those few centimeters or a couple of inches or whatever it is, um, whether or not the product is actually doing a useful job decoupling them from anything. Um, mm. His idea is basically that that's what's happening to everybody when they try these products and hear a huge improvement and that actually there's no real benefit. So on the counter side of that, you have Bob Katz talking about having custom decoupling uh, devices built for his, I mean, he's got massive Dynaudio speakers these days. And he's talking about really low resonant frequency. Um, I think the speakers sit on a concrete floor anyway, but he's still interested Mm -hmm. in decoupling them. He's done measurements where he has compensated for the height. Because the other thing that Ethan says is that even a few sort of other movements in the speakers, they have to be in exactly the same place as well as everything else. And the mic has to be in exactly the same place when you make the measurements. Um, And he's, you know, it's, it's his main argument when he talks about acoustic treatment in rooms as well, is that when you move your head, you you hear bigger changes in the sound just because of uh, the, the room nodes and where you are and how they color the sound in the room. 
I think all of the points that he makes are valid. On the other hand, Bob says that he's made measurements that has shown a noticeable difference in terms of the frequency response, which is what Ethan didn't find. So I would say in terms of proof, it's kind of not settled yet. I don't have anything sort of decoupling my speakers, but that's because they're sitting on a concrete floor and I've used some bricks, <laughs> a bit like you, to, to lift up the height somewhat. I think the big thing for most people is to say that most speakers do need to be at ear level. Now, having said that, mine aren't, but I know from experience that they have a very wide high-frequency dispersion. So, um, you know, kind of if I scrunch down in my seat and lower my head by six inches or whatever it is, that doesn't have any noticeable difference on the high end that I hear, whereas lots of speakers will kind of beam the, the high end in a very narrow area directly in front of the tweeter and if they're not if that's not kind of pointing straight at your ears you're basically off axis and that's gonna that's gonna change the way the speakers sound so i i would say that if if that's something you're looking at as a way to improve the sound of your speakers you're better off getting speaker stands so they're off the table completely uh speaker stands made a massive difference in the, the sound quality of my speakers, then acoustic treatment was like triple that improvement. And the, uh, you know, decoupling or putting some foam between the speaker and the stand was, I don't know, 1% or a, a much smaller amount. So yeah, I would spending I would... like 60, to, I think it's $60 for like a basic pair of uh, floor standing speaker stands those will let you get your speakers in the right space, in the right angles and all that. Um, and it just makes a massive difference. That, that was going to be my point. I, I mean, because lots of people buy kind of custom um, consoles for that are designed to have a computer monitor and a keyboard and some gear in racks, and then the monitors mounted as well. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily think that's a bad idea, but I see a lot of photos of studios where, for me, the speakers are too close. Um, too narrow and too close to... Too, too, too narrow, too close to the listening position, and also, as a result, too close to the wall. Um, because, yeah. you know, it's natural for people to put these desks up by the side of the, the wall. I mean, there's a, a video on my channel somewhere of how I set up my little room at home and I've said often it's it's not a proper mastering studio, but it, it follows good principles. And so I'm sitting here about one third of the room length away from the wall in front of me. And I spend a lot of time fiddling around with the speakers to get them in the right place. And the, the problem with one of these desks is that it just doesn't give you enough flexibility. It's like the monitors go there, whether or not that sounds any good. You can't move them back six inches because they'll fall off. And you can't move them six inches forward because they'll fall off the other side. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree. Um, if you're not kind of convinced by the way that things are sounding and that's the kind of setup that you have, I mean, even if it's not a custom made desk and it's just, they have to be where they are because of some physical restriction in the room. Yeah. Getting a pair of speaker stands so that you can adjust the height, adjust the position and move the speakers around independently of the mixing position and then put the mixing position also where it works best. That's going to yeah make a huge difference. And then you need the acoustic treatment, like you say. Um, and then probably I think the difference of the pads is not going to be that significant because the other thing that Ethan said, I mean, you know, Bob's measurements in his studio are probably several orders of magnitude more precise and more um, sensitive 
than it will be for any of us. Um, Ethan was making the point that even if it's a really rubbishy kind of desk that the speakers are sitting on, it doesn't really resonate significantly. If the speakers are fairly heavy, the amount that they're going to move and the amount of bass, for example, they're going to transmit into the table is probably pretty uh, minimal. Um, and like you said, the, you've also got this issue of reflections. But one advantage of those consoles is that by having the speakers up and fairly close to you, it's very unlikely you'll get any reflections off the desk that are interfering with the sound. Um, so that's a benefit, but you can achieve the same thing in other ways. Yeah. If you feel there's something going on and you've ruled out these other things that we're talking about and you want to try some kind of isolation system, I know lots of people who use use it and swear by it. Um, I've never tested it. I've never been bothered by it. But if it seems to work, you know, they're, they're not that expensive. I don't think there's any harm. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely a the kind of the last few percent kind of adjustment, like you say, rather than a, a game changer. Next question comes from Kim. I always mastered at minus 0.1 dB ceiling. Is it wrong these days? We also had a question from Spartan uh, on YouTube um, with a long but similar um, similar theme to his question. Yeah, Spartan was frustrated, wasn't he? Um, yeah. By the, I think both of these questions were prompted by the, the news fairly recently that Spotify now have some recommendations for the maximum peak level of music when you upload it um, to get the best results from encoding with their codec. Um, and, the, well, for, for loud material, they're recommending minus two as a, as a maximum peak level, whereas most people are kind of just getting used to the idea that maybe minus one was better than zero or minus 0.1 or minus 0.3 or whatever we've kind of been working to for ages. And yeah, he was, he was frustrated by, by all of this chopping and changing, <laughs> which is understandable. Yeah. I think when we've, when I first started to talk to you years ago, when was that like 2007 probably? Yep. thereabouts. I, I think I was starting to do uh, minus 0 0.7 and then probably in the last two years, minus one is where my ceiling's at. I don't see the point in going above that. There's, I, I think the, the intersample peak distortion or just, just the idea that the MP3 is going to sound worse, like with clipping, not just the, the data compression um, is the main thing that keeps me from going above. Yeah. So I changed to minus one. Um, I guess when, when the EBU, the loudness units recommendations first came out, um, the broadcast standards, and, and also around the time that Mastered for iTunes, uh, the guidelines for that were released. Um, and both of those picked minus one. That was kind of the first time that it hit my radar that there might be a problem with being any higher. Up until then, I'd been kind of minus a 0 0.3, I think. Um and yeah, the general problem with all of them is that there are situations where the audio will, either because of processing or encoding or just from playback from a digital to analog converter, will come out with levels that are over where you would expect them for zero dB full scale, um, and that, that could cause extra clipping. But I, I mean, I've made these changes and I make these recommendations. I'm not convinced that it will make an audible difference for the way that I'm working because I recommend working at relatively conservative loudness levels. And even if I go back and check 
loud projects that I mastered years before I became aware of these kind of issues with the with the maximum peak level, when I analyze them, I'm seeing the occasional intersample peak of like plus half a dB or something. Um, and I think there's a big difference between the occasional extra intersample peak and, you know, the kind of massive overshoots of like plus three that you can get if something has been mastered super loud right up to zero dB. Um, I think that's a situation where you definitely do run the risk of extra damage to the audio file. If the loudness levels are reasonably conservative to begin with, it's probably not the end of the world. So, I mean, Kim, I don't know that minus 0.1 is wrong. Um, one approach that people take is that they master up to zero for digital releases like CD, where the, the audio is going to be lossless, and then they just reduce the overall gain by a dB if it's going to go to uh, a format where it's going to be data compressed. So iTunes or one of the other online streaming services. Um, that will probably help and and minimize the risk. I mean, but I think it's important to say that minus 0.1 is not necessarily enough. It's, it's a good rule of thumb. Um, and if your loudness levels are conservative, then you'll probably be fine with it. That's my personal experience. But especially if you want to push the loudness harder, I mean, this is the this is the kind of the ironic thing is, I mean, Spotify's guidelines say minus one is fine if the loudness of your music is below, I think, minus 14 LUFS. Um, but if you're pushing it louder than that, then it should be minus two. So it's almost like the louder you push it, the more peak headroom you need and the less room again you've got to play with. Um, so it's another great reason for not mastering too loud. Um but I, I can I can appreciate why Spartan and other people are frustrated by this because it you know it seems like the the ballpark is uh, constantly moving. Um, but I I do think I agree with you. I don't see that there's any point in pushing it higher and running the risk that something is going to go wrong, especially not with the world as it is, where normalization is becoming more and more common, um, and. So the, the kind of the need to be super loud in the first place is reducing. The next question comes from Bruce. In episode 57, what Ian didn't address is how to handle the mastering when songs overlap on the album. As in, one song starts while the previous track is still fading out. Let's say you have a long, you maybe have sound effects blending between two tracks, or you have a long fade out and then the, the next song kind of grows out of the fade of the previous track, or something cuts in before the reverb of the previous song ends. At that point, you have an ID flag for the beginning of the song, um, somewhere in between those, which works fine. I mean, it sounds a bit weird when you skip to it directly, but he wants to know what, what you do, what I do um, when I'm exporting those files individually. And the answer is I personally don't change anything unless the client specifically requests it. I would be the same way, I think. Like, keep it the same as the album unless you're releasing that song as a single and that, and then maybe master it two ways or just change the intro first three seconds of it. You know, yeah. A different way. I mean, one, I mean, one of the reason behind that, one of them is just practical, which is that, you know, most, uh, aggregators, TuneCore, CD baby, um, all the rest of them won't let you submit multiple files to different services to begin with. Um, so lots of people, you know, just on the loudness topic, talking about, oh, should you do a quieter file for streaming than, or different files for different platforms? You'd be 
you've got a real challenge actually trying to get different versions onto the different platforms unless you upload them all separately yourself. But what that also means is you basically have one version of a song. Um, and if you, for example, if you did a version where you left the tail out of a song with a slow fade and you didn't have the next song coming in where it did on the album, when somebody chose to listen to that as if it was an album, the gaps wouldn't work, right? That You'd have no way of getting back to the spacing that you wanted for a continuous listening experience. Um, I mean, I guess if if there's no situation where you would imagine people listening to all of the songs in sequence, then that perhaps doesn't matter. Um, but basically, you you kind of have to keep it the way that it is. Um, and that's my reason for doing it, is I want to... I like mastering songs to be listened to in a sequence. I like um, structuring something as an album and even sending the client a DDP production master as if they were going to have a CD made, even if they're not going to, partly because all of the metadata can be included, and but also because the gaps can, can be worked out like that and can be kept precise. Um, so yeah, when they ask for files that are going to be uploaded, I just export them exactly as they would be on the CD, which does mean you have a hard start and end. You know, if you're listening to the song in shuffle, then the end of the slow fade will get chopped off. Um, and if the beginning kind of blends in from somewhere else, it'll have a, a sharp beginning, um, which is a shame, but it's kind of, there's almost no two ways around it. Like you say, if there's going to be a single release, perhaps a standalone version of the song, then then you could do a different edit. Yeah. Um, it has a clean intro or a clean outro sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. And that's kind of always been the way. I mean, I remember, I don't know, well, if you think of Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd on the album, that blends in, I think, at the, the, the start and the end. But obviously it was released as a single, so they had a different version for the for the vinyl single cut. Um, and yeah. Or whatever went to the radio. Exactly. Um, or video or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, there's another situation. If you've got different formats, maybe you can have... Um, I think the videos often have different masters. Videos often do. They sometimes have sound effects added, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the point where, well, I was going to say where vinyl was more common, but of course it's coming back these days. But there have been times where I've done um, masters where on the CD it plays continuously through from what would be side A and side B on the vinyl. Um, whereas on the vinyl, you obviously have to fade in and out somehow. Um, so I mean, there are kind of times when you can tweak it, but yeah, for, for individual songs on an album on a song by song basis, it's not really realistic to, to do it any differently. So if that's a concern of the artist, really the best you can do is to have some point where the signal between the two is very, very quiet and you're unlikely to notice things cut in and out or just live with the hard start and end. We have a bunch of questions from Steve. How much free time should you give to a potential client before you leave them to their own devices or ask for payments? What if a client refuses to pay after the master has been handed over, yet still uses the master? Should we ask for our fee up front or after the work has been completed? How about charging a deposit? Can that work without putting off potential clients? How do we prove that an unpaid master used for an end product is our master? So we were talking about this before we started recording and reading between the lines, we think Steve has been messed around by a client or two. Um, You know, he's basically asking how do, how do we handle payment? Probably we can, I can summarize the way that I work by saying that I always ask for payment upfront. So I ask for hundred percent payment in advance. 
that's a kind of reaction to... So I, for 15 years, I worked for a company and I didn't have to deal with this stuff. They used to charge 50% in advance and 50% on completion, which is a pretty standard way of working. That kind of covers you. You know, hopefully the 50% payment would be enough that if you get to a certain point in the, the project and the client bails on you, it's not a complete loss, but it's not so much money that they're deterred. I think maybe two or three years after I'd been working freelance, I had one client where it took me eight months to get the payment. That's when I changed my policy um, and asked for full payment up front. Now, I know for a fact that, that put some people off, um, but I'm okay with that um, because it basically rules out a whole ton of clients who might be problem clients. Um, I mean, I have a complete Definitely. money back guarantee if, and I mean, and, and I've said before, I always like to master the first song, um, send that to the client, get feedback, and we kind of figure out between us how it's going to sound. And, and that's always been um, an enough kind of uh, time and information to, to figure out if there's a project where I'm maybe not a good fit. In fact, now I say it, I don't think it's ever happened. Um, but it's it, that's reassuring for the client. So at that point, they know that if if things don't work out the way they hoped, you know, for whatever reason, I will refund them. And I haven't done too much work at that point, so there's not too much risk on my part. I think asking for 100% in advance is probably sort of the, the extreme other end of the scale. But kind of to answer Bruce's questions, personally, I don't think, I think it's a benefit to have a deposit because it rules out people who might be even thinking about pulling a fast one, if you like. There is the risk that it will put other people who are completely honest and, and upfront just put them off, you know, because they're concerned that maybe you won't be honest, that you would refund their money if they weren't happy or whatever. I think most people who are asking, especially these days, for mastering as a service, understand that there's going to be a price to pay and providing they know what that price is in advance, they can make a, a decision about it. Um, so, And that kind of basically covers all of those questions that Steve is asking about. What do you think, John? I do a very similar thing. Um... So 50% for a, an album project um, when I receive the files to begin work and the rest after revisions and everything is approved. I don't charge a deposit if I'm just doing a single. I'll just do the work and they get an MP3 to, to check and then full payment before the, the WAV files. I don't think that puts people off charging a deposit. I think that's pretty standard for any sort of creative work i mean we, we paid our builder up front recently when we had some work done <laughs> um i think it's kind of reasonable in any situation where you're providing a service in, in our case it's probably mainly time that we have to invest in doing the project but you know if yeah sometimes there are materials i mean there could be if you're i don't know buying analog tape or you need to get some buy, hire some mics for a recording session or whatever that might be so i think that's yeah completely reasonable um it's interesting you saying about supplying an mp3 because that's, I guess, one way in which you have a little bit of security in the sense that if the client suddenly decided they didn't want to pay, um, I would regard an M not regard an MP3 as usable for a master. Um, I can imagine there might be people out there who would think, yeah, the MP3 is fine. I mean, there's a lot of situations where that's all they want. <laughs> all they want is an MP3, and you're just giving it to them for free. I trust that most people are are not trying to screw me over. If that is the case, it's only been a couple hours of work at the most. Probably spent longer on the emails back and forth 
before the project started <laughs> in the actual mastering process or, you know, tracking them down for money later. I, at the end of the day, like a week later, I'm not going to remember it. So I, I don't care that much. Um, yeah, uh, that's a good point. And I mean, another thing you could do is simple stuff like, um, so like when I did, uh, demos for people, I don't do demos anymore, but, um, when I was still able to do them, when I still had the time, um, you could just fade the song out 10, 20 seconds early, um, yeah. you know, so that they get to hear everything about how it's going to sound, but they don't have the final version available to them. I mean, the one thing we haven't answered out of all of that is Steve's question about if this happens to you, if somebody uses a master that they haven't paid for, um, how can we prove that they have? That's difficult um, if they make any changes, but if they literally use the file exactly as is, you should be able to do a null test, um, yeah. which is something that we've we've talked about before. But very briefly, you you get both copies of the song. You know, you get your master and the a copy from the file that you think that they've used the master for. Line them up so that their um, sample, their time aligned down to the last sample in your DAW, and then invert the polarity of both channels of one of the files. Um, when you play those back, therefore the waveforms are effectively going in opposite directions and should cancel out completely. Um, so if they're identical, then yeah, you'll hear complete silence. That's going to work. If there's work. an EQ change, you're going to hear, you know, it, it won't be complete cancellation. If there's a conversion to like MP3 or AAC or something like that for a video, then it's it's going to be just the artifacts of that process, but it should be, you know, 99% null. Yeah. I mean, that's where you get into the kind of the slightly gray area and that's difficult to describe. My advice, if you are in any doubt is to experiment. So get two files that you know are identical um, and try adding small EQ changes here and there, or literally MP3 encode one of them and bring it back in and listen to the, the difference that's there. Um, that's when it, you know, if you're looking for a hard proof, if you can get a perfect null, because the other thing they might've done is change the level, but you can always tweak the level of one of the files to improve the amount of cancellation that you're getting. Um, if you can literally get a perfect null, then you've got a great case. Um, still doesn't mean if they're the kind of person who hasn't paid you that that's going to, you know, hold up in any way, but at least you can kind of, if they're saying, no, no, it's not the same, you can say, yes, they are. Look, I did this. And you could do a screen capture video or whatever to yeah. to kind of, and that might embarrass them into kind of, you know, doing the right thing. Um, if there's other kinds of differences, um, particularly EQ differences, it's hard to distinguish sometimes between an EQ difference and a mix difference. So then you, it's, it's tougher. Um, so it is a difficult situation. And I think the best advice... Steve is to to avoid all of this possibility by getting some kind of payment up front so that you feel comfortable that even if somebody does the wrong thing, you're not gonna be too much out of pocket. That's the best solution. Next question comes from Unfa. I've heard an opinion from a mixing engineer that dynamic masters might not work so well on PA systems. Results in venues might be worse than if one would go for a very compressed master instead. I'd love to know your opinion on this. Yeah, this is somebody has been making this point to me quite forcefully on social media in the last week or so. The examples that I uh, have, that have been put forward were for EDM 
And what I heard when I listened to these examples was very tight, very controlled bass, actually to the point where I felt like the masters were bass light. Um, and as an experiment, I went in and added some extra bass down in the kind of 50, 60 hertz region um, until I felt they were better balanced EQ-wise. And at that point, when I listened to them, they sounded pretty good. But because I had added this EQ boost, they were clipping. So then I reduced the levels down um, to prevent the clipping. And lo and behold, the mastering level at that point was back where in the kind of region that I would have put it if I'd been mastering the songs myself. Which, and my interpretation of that is that, okay, so this person has achieved a higher loudness than I would normally recommend by reducing the amount of bass because the bass is usually the the thing that's hardest to control without a big negative impact on the sound. It's, you know, the sound, it's either going to pump or it's going to distort, whatever the, the side effect might be. And so I made this comment to the person who was telling me that the PA was going to, the, these masters were going to sound better on a PA. Um, and I think the, the idea is that lots of PA systems have half a room full of subwoofers, basically, you know, you've got this, all yeah. this extra bass coming out of there. So that actually, if you put what I would consider to be a balanced EQ through them, it would sound over the top. And actually I can't say that that's not true. Um, it's it's certainly possible, you know. I mean, I hear people, I hear sound systems in cars where the bass is insane, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it com- sounds completely unbalanced, but the people who own the cars obviously love it. But what I can say is that there's no way in the world that all of those PA systems out there, all of those club systems, all the rest of it, have the same EQ boost. So let's say, for example, I have a master where, as far as I'm concerned, it's 4 dBs, light with a kind of a gentle parametric shape at, at 50 hertz right and then it's been pushed really loud if you play that that back on a pa system that effectively adds 4 dbs at 50 hertz with a nice gentle parametric shape it's going to sound fantastic in my opinion but if you play it back on a pa that has only got a 2 db boost it's going to sound a bit bass light and if you play it back on a pa that's got a 6 or an 8 db boost it's still going to sound over the top I mean, this is a general problem with mastering. We master things so that they sound great to us in the studio, but then they go out into the world and we have no control over the system they're played back on. But the whole concept of translation in mastering for me is that you get it to sound as good as you can on a system that is as balanced as possible. And then whatever happens to it out in the real world is what people expect. If people go to a club where there's a 10 dB boost in the sub bass, everything is going to get played back through that system. Everything they hear is going to be coloured in that way. So things are going to sound as they would expect. I think we've been talking about bass more than dynamics. Well, I mean, I'm talking about bass more than dynamics because the idea of the person that I was talking to was that if you have less bass in the master, you can push the... I'm always saying about EDM that it doesn't need to be as loud as it is. People keep telling me that it's part of the sound. And I certainly think that kind of that slammed, heavily limited sound is something that has become part of the genre. But my argument is always that you could achieve that in the mix, then give yourself a few more dBs to play with, and you could use those few dBs creatively. I don't feel that it's you don't have to have the raw level that loud 
to achieve the sound. The sound is to do with the processing, not the level. And that if if all of these things were mastered a little bit quieter, they could have their cake and eat it. <laughs> um, in the sense that you could have the slammed sound and then you could, yeah, do other stuff. Um, and it might not be the drums or the bass or whatever it is where you've got that characteristic over-limited sound, but maybe it's the synth drop or it's to do with the percussion or the effects or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm kind of talking about the bass because I mean that the, the argument worked, right? If you if you master with less bass, then you can push the loudness higher with less risk of damage. But I still don't see that that's better. It's just different. It doesn't really make sense to me because the big powerful PA system is going to have more headroom than our wimpy home stereos. So a dynamic master should work better. Yeah. I mean, so some of the most dynamic music I've heard has been at live gigs. Um, and, you know, on top of that, you've got the room that the PA goes into. I mean, if it's a, like if it's a club PA, you would hope that it's set up to, to sound good on the widest possible range of material. But if it's a touring yeah. PA, every night it goes into a different room and gets EQ'd differently to kind of adjust for the, yeah. For the variations. Yeah, I, I was. I would say it gets calibrated every day, so it should be pretty good. Yeah, if if, if yeah, absolutely. If the engineer is any good, and I mean, it depends what the engineer is using as a reference. Um, but again, this is something we don't have any control over. It's always Steely Dan. It's always Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's Steely Dan at an EDM gig. <laughs> um, the, uh, I mean, and the other thing is that okay, if you're that focused on how something's going to sound on a PA then maybe that should influence your decisions. But that then means that anybody listening in any other situation is effectively not getting an optimal result. Like for me, listening to these examples, I just felt, yeah, they sound pretty good, but I just, I would want more weight in the low end, you know? I'd want more, and I guess I could crank up the bass control on the my amp, but that's never going to be perfect. They have limiters in hardware and software for consoles as well. Well, this is the other thing, you know, I mean... It, you know, you, yeah. Do that in the PA. You, there, there's loudness matching software built into the PA, into the the DJ software, into Serato and Tractor and all the others. Um, DJs will have to balance the levels to a certain extent themselves because you know even with all of the, the some of this stuff is up at minus four LUFS, some of it's at minus six, and some of it's only minus eight. So you've got a variation there anyway. It's I mean maybe the DJ builds that in and uses that as part of the ebb and the flow of the set. Um, but I think most of them just kind of tweak the final levels a little bit. Um, I just remember, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, we would scour the the record shops looking for the white label releases of club tunes. You know, uh, specific, literally maybe only 10 copies were pressed of a particular tune for DJs to use in a set. And they would have extra, you know, whatever it was, minute or two of beat at the beginning or end so that they could be mixed and that they could get really creative with the, with the blending of the, the tracks. Um, I feel like if somebody's focus is that kind of laser sharp on how it's going to sound in a club or in a PA, maybe you do a separate version specifically for that purpose and then a more balanced overall master for everybody else who just listens on, uh, you know, an iPod or in the car or a radio, wherever it is. Um, and that is just my opinion, um, you know, and everybody knows my opinions about loudness. So I could be using the my general opinion about loudness as a 
an excuse to kind of say, no, the, the club argument doesn't make sense. But yeah. I've never seen a video on it from the from inside of a club demonstrating it. So if that exists, please show me. Yeah, I I just don't believe that the, what's out there in Clubland in terms of the PA systems is is consistent enough that it makes any sense. You could tune something perfectly for a particular PA in a particular venue, but as soon as you move it anywhere else, all bets are off. And actually that I know from experience. I mean, I I started off working in live sound um, in the universities um, when I was a student and we would put up and tear down a PA every night and it had to be separately EQ'd every time, even though it was in the same room, because it depended on the material and it depended on the crowd and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, even after you'd done your sound check, you would tweak it during the gig to try and get the results better. Um, so when something is that variable, I just don't see that it makes any sense to try and optimize for it. All right, so that's all the questions. Cool. Well, I mean, hopefully people found something interesting or useful in there amongst all of the... Uh, rambling um i mean thanks to everybody for sending in questions we love getting them we can't always reply but we do try and read them all um and we make notes of the ones that come up most often or that we think are particularly interesting for q a's or even future episodes so by all means keep sending them in we'd love to hear from you and thank you john for uh, collecting the the questions we answered this evening and for mixing and editing the show as always yep my pleasure Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music and thanks for listening. 